everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Couch with Bridges Mental Health. I'm Sam, and today I'm joined by our wonderful guest, Dr. Michelle Chung. Welcome, Dr. Chung. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, we're so excited. So, so would you like to take a little bit of time to introduce yourself, maybe share a little bit about your identity and your work with our listeners? Sure. I am a clinical psychologist based in New York City. I work with children, families, and adults in my practice. And in terms of orientation, I work more from a CBT and DBT place. However, that being said, I have a great appreciation for other orientations and other models of therapy. Um, I always say, thank God they're all out there for everyone. (laughs) And I specialize in working with anxiety-related struggles, including perfectionism and trauma and OCD. And I also do a lot of work with ADHD and executive functioning and a lot of Asian American identified clients. Awesome. Well, welcome. And and I know today we are going to be talking a little bit about building healthy Asian ethnic identity in our children and also in ourselves. And and Michelle, when we had chatted about this, this topic had stuck out so much to me because it's exactly the kind of thing that when I think about my experience growing up as a kid, that like, I wish I had had these skills or had had more tools around how do I feel about my identity? How do I understand it? Absolutely. And I think this is something, especially in the Asian American population, it's such an emerging topic that I think a lot of our parents just, you know, they were just kind of thrown in, into the fire, right? They had no guidance, you know, there was no research or or, or not a lot, at least out there um, that was supporting or, you know, or saying anything in terms of how, how to do this in, in a healthy way. And so it's really exciting to see all of this all these publications and, and things that are coming out now that really can guide us not only as adults to be able to do that for ourselves, but for those of us that do have families and children are able to do that for the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed such a shift in our communities around kind of mental health in general, but also actually openly talking about our experience as Asian Americans or Asian folks Mm -hmm. living in the United States or abroad. You know, I wonder if it might be a good place for us to start just kind of sharing a little bit of your understanding or how you would conceptualize just like identity development in general for our listeners who may be a little bit unfamiliar with that topic. Sure. So in terms of Asian American ethnic identity development, What all the studies are really showing is that having a healthy ethnic identity development does buffer against the negative effects of discrimination and racism and prejudice. So it's a really important topic to really focus on. And especially in the Asian American children, what they found is that having a a healthy racial identity is linked with lower levels of behavior problems, depressive symptoms, and increases in happiness or joy and self-esteem. Um, so just, just really great benefits that come out of this. And when it comes to Asian American racial identity formation, I think the model that's spoken about the most is one developed by Dr. Jean Kim. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of you out there might've heard about this, but her model is incorporated into five stages or steps. And if you were to sort of just get a general overview of what her model covers, it starts off by basically saying when we're young, usually in our preschool years, we start to become aware of 
ethnic differences, right? Hey, we might be look different, sound different, certain differences of, of, of what we eat than the majority white culture. And then from there, there is this desire or need to assimilate more to the majority culture. And then she talks about sort of an awakening that happens where you start to become aware of certain injustices and prejudices and racism. And there becomes sort of this almost like a fiery ability to want to learn more about it and to advocate for that particular ethnic group. And then she talks about coming to a sense of pride in your ethnicity and a place of feeling comfortable. In, in who you are. And then the last stage, which she discusses is when you build that healthy Asian American identity and are able to actually move beyond just racial differences and racial development and start to explore and look at our identity within the larger context and bigger picture of just society and our social identities. So you really sort of see it kind of move in that direction. It doesn't have to necessarily go exactly in that step or in those stages. Some people who have critiqued that model have said, hey, maybe not everyone really goes through that white identification phase. You know, maybe not everyone wants to really assimilate to that particular majority culture. So, you know, there's there's obviously some exceptions out there to that development model. But the one thing that I will say that has been really interesting that has set Asian American ethnic identity models apart from other ethnic identity models is that when you look at other ethnicities, there's this sense that the development, it's an internal intrapsychic type of process that happens. However, they found that for Asian American populations, this development is largely influenced by relationships and by external forces more so than other ethnicities. Wow, that's really interesting. And that avoidance of shame is actually one of the strongest drivers in developing our ideas of ethnicity in Mm -hmm. general. And this, you know, obviously really speaks to the collectivist kind of nature of our culture and Asian American populations that really does make it different. Yeah. You know, so much of what you just shared really stood out to me. That first piece that you mentioned around research has shown that having healthy identity development provides all these protective factors. I mean, it really does show how important this work is. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about like some of these differences. You know, one thing that you mentioned around this really strong sort of like shame drive within Asian American communities, you know, it makes me think a lot about in my work with many Asian American folks, this kind of deep sense of internalized racism that you see. I wonder how you see that playing out in this work that you do with folks. Yes, absolutely. In terms of the internalized racism, it's interesting because these biases, so many of them are unconscious. You know, they're they're both implicit and explicit, right? And a lot of it are things that you will not even really notice what's happening. So I remember, for example, even for myself, so I grew up in in an area where there was a majority white population and very few Asian people. And because of what I was used to, when I would go into areas where there were a lot of Asians, it felt uncomfortable in some ways, 
right? And and sometimes I would think, hmm, I wonder what all these, you know, non-Asian people are thinking right now that there are so many Asian people in this room. And, you know, even thoughts like that, which obviously at, at that time, I didn't identify as internalized racism, but in a lot of ways it is. Like that's how sneaky it can be, right? You know, it can affect the way that we look at appearance, right? And what we think is beautiful, right? Certain even physical traits, clothing and fashion and hairstyles, even certain things like that, that I think change slowly our our values and, and where we are aligned. And I think a lot of that could be driven by internalized racism in a way that we don't even realize. Another story I remember is when I was in I want to say fifth grade social studies class, I had a non-Asian, a white teacher. And she had said, there are Asian cultures out there that change the shape of their eyes using plastic surgery in order to make them bigger so that they look more Westernized, right? And I remember when she explained it that way, I was appalled. I was kind of like, what is that? Like, the, like who would do that? And then I realized, you know, I'm Korean. And then I realized that, that's something that it's called sankapur susur, right? It's like a, a double eyelid surgery. Mm-hmm. And I probably 90% of the people that I knew, <laughs> you know, that were the over the age of 18. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but a majority do get the surgery to the point where I didn't even realize it was plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, it was that common, you know, amongst a lot of the people that I knew. So even, even something like that, you know, I was like, wow. You know, I never really viewed it in that way. Yeah. I think you bringing up how kind of below the level of consciousness, these beliefs are, you know, you speaking about like being with a majority Asian community or in a room and that feeling uncomfortable. I identify with that so strongly. You know, I I've shared a little bit on the podcast about my own biracial identity. And I remember in college going to an event Um, that was being run by some like Asian cultural society and feeling so out of place because I'd been so familiar and so comfortable with just being surrounded by whiteness all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's like the added layer of my own white parent and what that means. But I think that that is so true and probably resonates with so many people, like the ways in which we may not even notice Mm -hmm. or realize that that's internalized racism that's going on for us. Absolutely. Because it's that subtle at times, right? And I just want to put out there, I'm not saying this is bad or wrong. It's just so ingrained in our culture and the way that we think about things that we just might not even notice it. And I think it's important enough to pause and to think about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if we think about our more vulnerable children population, right? The ones that are that are still really influenced and their their development is still forming. At, at those early stages, really being able to block those internalized thoughts from becoming solidified, right? So really externalizing racist comments that are said to them or just really subtle remarks and things that are, you know, that they're exposed to, to be able to give them not only the awareness, but also the ability and the voice to change that and say, hey, that's not something I'm going to take in because this is, you know, a part of who I am or something I should be embarrassed about or or feel shame around, but instead that this is on them, 
you know, this, this is on that other person or, you know, source. And to be able to challenge that, those negative voices, you know, those negative messages that they might be hearing and getting from other people. Yeah. You know, Dr. Chung, that, that makes me think of that comment you just made about Asian identity for the most part, perhaps being more influenced by these external factors. When you said kind of compared to other ethnicities, I wonder how you've seen that in your work. Absolutely. A lot of my Asian clients that I see struggle, especially if, if I were to think about the younger ones, struggle with this idea of either fitting the model minority myth, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of fitting what they feel is expected of them by society and from those around them. Or sometimes it's about fitting the standards of their family, even, right? Or their peers, It's just really trying to almost mold themselves into that way to be accepted rather than being able to really relish and be proud of differences and to celebrate those differences, Mm -hmm. you know, which I think is an extremely important point, not only for children, but also for us as adults, right? To be able to say, you know, it's wonderful to be different and none of us are perfect. You know, we're all our each individuals and that being able to come together and to say like, whether you're the one who's different or whether somebody else is different, that this is amazing. Like, Mm -hmm. look at how wonderful it is that there are different people out of there. There's different hair colors, there's different foods, and we get to all celebrate in that. Yeah, I love that so much, you know, hearing that in kind of teaching kids and our adult selves that it's okay to be different and have these differences, the ways in which it sounds like that sort of plays out, externalizing that to other communities too. I mean, that feels like such a powerful message around you're different and that's okay. And it's also okay that other people are different. Like that's an amazing thing also. Mm -hmm. And, And this is definitely something that I'll, a theme that I'll go back to because it's just that important is this whole sense of being able to celebrate the differences. Like, um, I have a colleague who says, let your freak flag fly, you know, (laughs) I, and I, and I love that, right. Because it's not bad to be different, but we want to actually say, you know, it's brave to be different. It's, it's wonderful to be different. I know with my son, even one of the things that I say every night to him before he goes to sleep is, you know, nobody is perfect, but you are the perfect son for me. Mm -hmm. And I go on to list all these quirks that I noticed about him that day and a few positive things too, but, you know, certain things like, you know, the way you thought about that movie, you know, it was so different. And I love that. So to kind of really celebrate some of those things that make him unique and stand out, right? Just really pointing out those specific things from a young age, I think is a way to really bake in acceptance into their worldview. Yeah. I imagine so many parents who may listen to this or perhaps people who are contemplating parenthood or think about like, how will I help my kid through this would find that so helpful. I love that sort of pointing out these small things that make a person different, how that can actually be empowering and beautiful. I I wonder if you have other tips or questions or things that you might encourage listeners to ask themselves to explore their own relationships to their identities, to help them kind of foster that in themselves or in their children. You know, I think in terms of 
of the questions that you could ask yourself, I actually think what's most important is to start with you to kind of really assess and think about what are your own biases? Mm -hmm. You know, where are you coming from? What are your triggers? You know, have there been any traumatic experiences around race, ethnicity, racism, prejudice, even looking at your family of origin? You know, what what is that story? You know, what what's brought in there in terms of intergenerational messages, intergenerational traumas, even values and priorities that are all brought down across generations and just really understanding and starting from that point, right? I think in terms of the other thing, you know, what are your implicit and explicit biases, not only of your own ethnic group, but of other ethnic groups? Mm -hmm. And to think about as well, what are some things you like about your ethnicity and, and your culture of origin? You know, what do you actually feel positive about? What do you feel proud about? And how would you like that to pass down from generation to generation? And I think on top of that, you know, going back to this whole idea of internalized racism, are there times that you might feel embarrassed of, you know, your culture or parts of your culture? What does that feel like for you? And whether it's behaviors or, or feelings, what does that bring up for you? And really checking in with yourself in terms of how you want to be able to manifest that going forward. Yeah. There's so much of what you shared that I imagine people would find so helpful. You know, you mentioned, of course, exploring our relationship to our own identities, you know, the parts that we may not like the parts that perhaps society told us are not good, but also the parts that we do like. I think that, you know, when we're in a culture where we're often told that your identity is different and perhaps therefore that means it's wrong. We, we may not actually take that much time to think about the parts of our culture that we love. Like maybe we love how interconnected our families are and that mm-hmm. we may live with more than just our immediate family, like things that we often see. It, I hear that it can feel so easy to focus on just the parts that we feel are different or that kind of keep us excluded or feel different from our peers around us. Absolutely. Yes. Well, so Dr. Chung, you have shared so much with our listeners that I imagine people will find so helpful. I wonder if you have any last tidbit that you want to give our listeners, maybe potential parents out there around this topic that you feel may be helpful before we wrap up. There's definitely a few things that I would think about. One is comparison culture and keeping an awareness and an eye on that. I think oftentimes Asian parents tend to compare children to their peers, right? And with the intention of motivating that person to try harder. But unfortunately, this tactic tends to have the opposite effect. In the bigger picture, it sets people up to feel more fragile and to have a fragile sense of self-esteem because what they end up doing is having this worldview and this this self-esteem that's based on comparing themselves to other people and not really based on your inner standards and values. And so it really does set up a child and a person to really feel like you're never good enough or that you are a sum of your accomplishments and not really just, you know, worthy for just who you are. There's this sense of when you're in that comparison culture, 
of wanting to be more like the other, right? Because there is such a focus on not just you as an individual, but you in comparison to other people that does play into an unhealthy way of building self-esteem, but also ethnic identity development, right? If you think about self-esteem, it's, it's not about feeling good about yourself per se. It's about being able to let go of the question, am I good enough? Mm-hmm. Because if you're able to let go of that question, it means that you know you're good enough. You're not perfect, but you know what? You're good enough. If we were to make that as practical as possible, don't even bring up other people's, you know, I think sometimes it's like, oh, did you know Johnny so-and-so, you know, just bought a $3 million home, you know, somewhere and, you know, his kids got into Johns Hopkins and and Mm. Harvard or, you know, whatever, not even really bringing up those stories because it doesn't really do anything for your kids and family members. I think focusing more on strengths and weaknesses in people. And allowing children to really develop and make mistakes and do things on their own because that builds confidence in their own skills and allows them to take risks and make mistakes. And there is a magic, I always call it the magic ratio in relationships, which is five to one. So there's five positives to every one criticism. I love that. That's like mm -hmm. so concise and really easy, I think, for people to follow and keep track of. Absolutely. And so that's a really important one. That's, that's important, not just for families and for kids and parents, but also in couples, you know, for teachers with, with kids um, and, and their students. And the other thing there, I think, is really about setting realistic goals, not only for yourself, but also for your children or for other people around you. You know, the other thing I I might want to bring up here is the model minority myth. And I think how much it really does affect Asian Americans, maybe more than we want to believe it does. I don't know if you know the history behind it, but I just find it kind of fascinating that, you know, it started in the 1960s where there was this sense of, you know, Asian Americans were good second class citizens. We are able to work really hard and go to good schools and get paying jobs. But, you know, the, the reality is, you know, a lot of people believe that it was used to work against other minorities, that it pins us against other minorities and saying like, hey, if this group of minorities were able to do it, you know, why couldn't this group do it as well? Um, which is obviously just very wrong. And obviously there's this innate thing that says that all Asians are the same, which is not true either, right? It is truly a falsity. It's a myth, right? I know that I I was an Asian that wasn't necessarily fantastic at math. You know, it's one of the things that I share with most of my Asian clients that do struggle with not fitting the mold. And I think there are wonderful people that can be really great role models for us. You know, the people that come to mind is, you know, David Chang, the Momofuku chef, Mm -hmm. he's made a great success and a great career in doing something completely different, right? So, you know, really being able to relinquish the fact that you have to fit into this box that people expect of you, because then you're going to inevitably feel that you're not good enough. One thing that you said that really stood out to me is around this idea of like, the model minority of still being the second-class citizen, like this idea of there's still this kind of inherent comparison and less than around what might be considered the majority at the time of whiteness. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this feels so related to those things that you shared around 
really emphasizing individual differences as being a positive thing, rather than comparing ourselves to this thing that may feel totally inauthentic or not actually a true reflection of who we really are. Right. Absolutely. Going back to these role models that we have within our Asian American community, you know, I think it is so important, even as adults, to expose ourselves to those types of role models. And, you know, even for the parents out there, for your children, right? This, this whole idea that I know the Olympics, Winter Olympics just ended, you know, Chloe Kim and Nathan Chan, you know, there's these people that look like you, you know, that are doing these wonderful, amazing things that are not fitting in this perfect little box that yes, everyone. Michelle Kwan was my hero when I was Michelle growing Kwan, up. Yes. Mm-hmm. She's of like course. my person where it's like, if you could sit down and have dinner with one person, I usually say her. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you know, she, oh my goodness, there's so many things I can say about her that I think is wonderful. She was on a podcast. Uh, it was a long time ago, but it was called the happiness lab, but she talks about the struggles of winning a silver. Mm. It's just so fascinating hearing how vulnerable it can be for her even, right? Who is this very accomplished skater. And, you know, they say gold obviously is the most excited. Bronze is just probably happy to be there. And then the silver is actually the hardest place to be. And she, she's a great role model in that way right? So really being able to expose yourself and your children to whether it's a diverse group of friends or cultures and foods or films and characters and books, having that type of exposure and that personal experience with positive people from your own ethnic groups, I think are really important and a part of what will help develop that healthy ethnic identity. Dr. Chung, you've shared so much with us today that has been so helpful. We have appreciated having you on so, so much. I wonder if you could share a little bit with our listeners about where they can find you if they want to learn more or potentially work with you. Sure. I have a website, which is probably the best way to get in touch with me, which is just drmichellechung.com. And I do have an Instagram. I just started a few months ago, so it's very slow and growing. But for those that want to just get a sense of I call it mental fitness. So these are tips on building resilience and staying mentally fit. Uh, A lot of it is more, I would say, psychoeducationally based. My handle there is dr.michellechung. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Chung. Of course. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.